going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. And good evening and welcome. I'm so happy you've tuned in to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show and to my first five Before I get to the point of my first five tonight, I do want to take a moment and just ask all of our listeners to keep, please keep in your prayers, all of the victims, the rescue people dealing with the um, ongoing Hurricane Harvey and the aftermath of it, the flooding, the people trapped in their homes, already some fabulous rescue stories. And just please keep those, all those people in your prayers. I do want to say, I want to make a prediction about the can-do American spirit, which is well-known and just lives and breathes in Texas. I know there'll be a lot of damage and a lot of things to fix, but I think the Texas can-do Help your neighbor. Spirit will kick in. We are not going to have the long aftermath problem that other cities may have had dealing with hurricanes. Texas is going to come together because we're that kind of state. I also think this is a good example of the rainy day fund, what that kind of fund is actually meant for, this kind of damage. So keep them in your prayers, and we'll report any updates. Um, And just grateful for all the people who are working so hard to rescue folks. All right, what I want to talk tonight in the first five is about, you know, I mentioned last week that Steve Bannon had left the White House And we talked through some of the consequences of that. Well, this week, the newest departure, uh, it was Sebastian Gorka, who, uh, conflicting stories, submitted a resignation letter, which uh, may have been one of those, you know, you can't fire me, I resign. I don't know, because the White House was kind of denying that he had resigned. But in any case, this is a very significant thing, again, in terms of the Trump agenda. And this Sebastian Gorka was a deputy assistant to President Trump. He was an advisor on things such as dealing with the Muslim Brotherhood, countering their activities, the crisis in Qatar, all sorts of very serious foreign policy issues. And Sebastian Gorka wrote a letter to President Trump on his resignation. I'm going to read just portions of it to, to give you a flavor of how significant his departure from the White House is. Sebastian Gorka wrote to President Trump, Regrettably, outside of yourself, the individuals who most embodied and represented the policies that will make America great again have been internally countered, systematically removed, or undermined in recent months. This was made patently obvious as I read the text of your speech on Afghanistan this week. The fact that those who drafted and approved that speech removed any mention of radical Islam or radical Islamic terrorism proves that a crucial element of your presidential campaign has been lost. Just as worrying when discussing our future actions in the region, the speech listed operational objectives without ever defining the strategic victory conditions we are fighting for. This omission should seriously disturb any national security professional. I'm going to cut out a big portion of it, but this is a serious national security advisor. As you recall, during the primary, it was one of the main points made between many on the right and the primary and Hillary Clinton. The left always would say there is absolutely no reason to ever mention 
radical Islam, to blame terrorism on Islam, to even use the term radical Islam. President Trump and along with Senator Ted Cruz did use that term. And so what this guy is pointing out is not minor. What he's pointing out is the liberal mindset within the White House is winning. The people currently advising President Trump, he's choosing to keep in his inner circle, are not on board with that forceful denouncement of radical Islam, which Gorka was advising, Bannon advised, other serious people did. So this is another, it's not just one person who's left, who I happen to like, Sebastian Gorka, like him or not, but it's a bigger thing about who is influencing this president. And the other big point I want to make in this um, first five tonight is, you know, this is a... Um, we're at a time when it seems as though Trump's agenda is stalled. We have the, I will say, I read something recently, the, White, the, the House, the U.S. House, has passed 226 bills that are part of the president's agenda that made their way to the Senate and have gone nowhere. So it's really the Senate, more than the, more than the House, dragging their feet. But here's the bigger point I want to make in this opening five. Donald Trump's presidency, whether you liked him or hate him, like his personality or don't like his personality, Think that he doesn't understand the constitutional implications of the problems America faces, which I agree he does not. Think that he did not understand what needed to happen in Obamacare repeal, which I agree he didn't understand. He knew it was a problem. He didn't understand the, the depth and complexity, but he knew he had to fix it. These kind of central things that he ran on, this reassertion of America, his whole campaign reinvigorated, re-inspired a kind of freedom spirit in America. Whether you think he's a poor embodiment of that message, his campaign was a rejection of the ruling elite in Washington. It was a reinvigoration of the spirit of freedom in America. And what his voters wanted was for him to get his agenda done. And the GOP needs to wake up and recognize this. They can push and you can have the Democrats win. The Democrat media mob, the Mueller investigation, the Democrat mob, they could even succeed in removing Donald Trump. I don't think they will. I'll wager. I don't think they will succeed in removing him. He may stomp off out of exasperation. I don't think they'll remove him. But I do think if the GOP doesn't begin standing up and fighting for the elements of his agenda that caused voters to turn up for him in record numbers, they're going to find out that freedom movement is not going to go away. Even if Donald Trump is gone from office, that freedom movement will not go away. And the GOP better get on board with that and start doing the big items that cause America to support Donald Trump. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. We come back after the break. We're going to talk about the New York Times reaction to President Trump's speech in Phoenix. Come right back. Texans have a long tradition of independence, and we don't like being told what to do, especially by liberal bureaucrats 1,000 miles away. That's why for 30 years, the Dallas-based Institute for Policy Innovation has fought Washington's efforts to take more of your money and freedom. IPI works every day to keep taxes low and freedom high, to promote free market health care, expand energy security, protect intellectual property, and combat onerous regulations that destroy American jobs. Politicians often talk smaller government, but then vote for more of it. By contrast, IPI has never veered from its mission to defend the Constitution and fight for freedom. If you want to be informed about free market policies and solutions, go to IPI's website and sign up. All of their information is free for sharing. Help IPI restore liberty and economic growth. Go to IPI.org today. That's IPI.org. One more time, go to IPI.org today. Hi, this is Debbie George Addis. 
on my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility when politicians propose solutions to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org. Let me tell you about the group Vice President Mike Pence called the most effective grassroots pro-life organization in America. It's the Susan B. Anthony list, and they're the ones who are on Capitol Hill right now, day in, day out, to fight back against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. Every day in our nation, abortion takes more than 2,000 innocent lives, almost two every single minute of every single day. And Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion business in the country, committing one-third of all abortions. It's an unspeakable tragedy and a stain upon our nation and our humanity. And it's up to us to do something about it. This is your opportunity to join the team that's leading the charge to end abortion. Go to sba-list.org or Google Susan B. Anthony List now to learn more and start saving lives today. Can you hear us now? Can you hear us and welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Got my Right View Roundtable tonight joining me. I'm so happy to have both in studio. I have Kirby Anderson and Lori Medina. They've both been on numerous times before. Glad to have them here. And um, we're going to jump in. I do want to talk about... Uh, if all of you watch or listeners watch, um, I didn't watch live, but I watched later, uh, Don Trump's speech in Phoenix. And it was more like, again, like a campaign rally. He, he, the man's going to campaign all four years at least. Um, but he made some pretty punchy points about the media. And, uh, I didn't want to have too long a clip because I want time to talk about it. But I asked Greg if he would pull this one clip about what Trump had to say about the media in the Phoenix speech. I mean, truly dishonest people. 
in the media and the fake media. They make up stories. They have no sources in many cases. They say a source says there is no such thing, but they don't report the facts. Okay, you know, that was actually a mild segment. Now that he went on and on, he actually pointed, talking to this big, enormous arena, he pointed to the bank of reporters someplace and said, see all those people up there? And he got, I mean, it was like a 45-second boo from the audience. Oh, wait, I want to interrupt myself to say, if you are watching on Facebook Live, first of all, thank you for watching. We appreciate that. We're trying to make sure the sound is working. So if someone, if you, if you can't hear, could you just put in the comment, can't hear? And we, then we'll, we'll hope we have our sound working. Okay. So anyway, New York Times uh, responded. They got their, it's like they like got their feelings hurt. I mean, that's how it struck me. The New York Times had a, had a, um, an opinion page by an article and an editorial, I guess. Nicholas Kristof just about how to melt down, about how harshly Trump is speaking of that, about the media and kind of reasserting or just asserting, saying we are, you know, we hold people's their feet to the fire. We we are um, we are an ind- indispensable constraint on on politicians, and they're just they're noble. They they're just so noble and virtuous, and they're and they were just really offended and, and bothered, and there was just endless sniping about it on CNN and all sorts of other networks. So I'm going to start with. I'm just curious. Do you think Trump? does himself any good at all or uh, in making these kind of comments should he should he do this or do you or what do you think about that well every time he takes on the media uh, america cheers <laughs> i mean really so i mean from a popularity standpoint it's kind of like it's his you know it, he's always got it he can always go to that one and so when he's down in the polls there's a controversial issue he can always mock and criticize the media and it's it's always a winner for him Okay, but okay. So, what do you think, Kirby? Is he helping well? You himself? know, he is dealing with a media that is not well liked. You go back right. since I'm the oldest one around here, <laughs> uh, when Richard Nixon and Pat Buchanan and Spiro Agnew went after the media back then, uh, the nabobs of negativity and all the lines that were used <laughs> at that, that time, all those kinds of things. That was a tough sell because they were already down on Nixon and many people respected the media. And then, of course, right after Watergate, everybody was convinced that the media was one of the best things we've ever had in America. You look now, the media is down beneath uh, used car salesmen, by the way, no uh, slam to used car salesmen and uh, some of these uh, very awful figures of history they have just no kind of respect so he doesn't really lose a lot by going after them now to give nicholas Kristof his due he said if only president trump denounced neo-nazis as passionately and as sincerely as he castigates journalists i think he did but nevertheless that's kind of his argument and his other argument is as well mr president you lie all the time so we just have to mm-hmm. catch you in all the lies Well, it does seem to me that there were all sorts of lies we collected for President Obama. Sometimes he would even get a four Pinocchio. But as Lori and I have talked about before, the next day we went into something else, you know, and we forgot all about that. And there were all sorts of whoppers that were told by the previous administration, and those were massaged very quickly by the media. Some even misstatement is sometimes not even a misstatement, but they call it that. And so they give us a statistic that there have been a thousand misleading statements since he's assumed the presidency. Well, that's because they perceive anything that looks like truth as a misstatement. Well, and actually, when it com- if, if I were a reporter, I would rather have a president like Trump. If I thought he was not telling the truth, then that would give me something juicy to, to write about, quite frankly. It would allow me my... 
you know, Bob Woodward moment, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, from a from a journalist standpoint, isn't that kind of what they're always looking for? So, I, you know, I don't I mean, listen, they just hate him. It all comes down to worldview. They don't have his worldview. They never will. And that's why they hate him. One of the things I wanted to say, when you quoted from Sebastian Gorka, who I've had a chance to interview and just think very highly of him, um, he said something that is parallel to something that Tucker Carlson said the other day. Tucker Carlson said that except for, and he was mentioning one person at that time, Steve Bannon, almost everybody else in the Trump White House right now would feel comfortable in Hillary Clinton's administration. Sebastian Gorka was saying essentially the same thing. The few true believers that you have either have been marginalized or been shoved out. And that should concern a lot of people that either enthusiastically or even reluctantly voted for Donald Trump. I couldn't agree more. On the media point, I think that since the era of Nixon that Kirby was alluding to, I think the media has changed so much. I think almost everyone categorizes the media. And I think that what used to pass for journalism, allegedly neutral journalism, New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, you know, most of the major networks, CNN, NBC, ABC, CBS, MSNBC, I think that most people see them, they, they don't even really, uh, it's not really disputable, I don't think. They are just left-wing. They bring a left-wing perspective. And then, I, so I think that the idea that they attack Trump is so, uh, I mean, I, I think they do, they do a disservice to America by doing the things like you're alluding to, like that was mentioned in that New York uh, Christoph article where he says he's gotten a thousand mm-hmm. Pinocchios or whatever it was a thousand times. He's prevaricated a slightly. Lies. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's like if Trump says, well, that that, that was a pretty good rally yesterday and they thought it was terrible. Does that count? I mean, I, <laughs> yes. I, I, yes, they are just the, And I, I think if he they, says it's partly cloudy and it's partly sunny. He gets. Right, a, a right. Mis, yes. That's right. a misleading statement. This is this is ridiculous. The way well, they're mm-hmm. using a very careful way to uh, actually identify what a misleading statement is. I couldn't agree more. And I think in this, but I think that kind of screams off the page on this. And by the way, if you want to read this, all of the links we discuss on our show are posted at AmericaCanWeTalk.org and on our, and our Facebook page. But the website's really full of all the links. This is really I, the creepy thing about this New York Times. Two things are creepy. One is that they really have their feelings hurt. They sound offended, mm-hmm. like we're these noble people, which leads to number two. They really don't see their bias. I mean, I actually think that is true. I think they think we're reporting from the, you know, the peak of intellectual honesty. And this is who and and the common American, they voted for Trump. I mean, the common person who voted for Trump can't stand the New York Times, wouldn't believe if they reported it was raining outside. But I think that's really the definition of liberals themselves is that they hold themselves in a very high and mighty self-righteous way. Uh, they put everyone else beneath them from a morality and ethics standpoint, and they hold themselves as the arbiter of every everything. So, I mean, this is this is just you know this is the personification of liberalism right here. Yes, and on top of that, it was another thing Christoph said I thought was so interesting. He made this point when Trump galvanizes crowds against reporters in the room. I mur- I worry that we may lose journalists in the line of duty. Not only in places like in Syria, but also right here at home. Okay, this is a great example of just, you just can't even, you you don't even know who you are anymore as a journalist. 
these people in New York Times would report, they would report a Black Lives Matter protest at a Trump rally or an anti-Trump rally, but they could not bring themselves to honest reporting about, for example, Charlottesville, that the white supremacists were violent and bad, and the Antifa crowd was equally violent and bad. As a modern example, they are so determined in their worldview lens to report only the side that they can't stand as evil. And so when he writes this, this is this is coming from a guy who works for a paper who barely could stand to criticize the Black Lives Matter protesters, could barely could stand to criticize people engaging in violence. In fact, they blame Trump, if anything, for the violence at his rallies, when quite often it was the protesters outside engaging in violence. And, and as you say, Laura, even if they... They could. They were forced to recount. Well, actually, there was one violent anti-Trump person. The person's name and, and face are gone the next day. Sure. Story over. Sure. So this, I, I just, I think this is eye-opening. We talk a lot about you know the media mob and this show and 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 the media bias, but this whole thing is screaming of left-wing media bias. One of the things that was done a number of years ago at the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA is not exactly a bastion of conservative research. But they went and looked at the quotes from these various individuals, columnists, reporters, and others, and they concluded if the media were a congressional district, if you just took all those people in the media (laughs) and make the congressional district, it would be more liberal than Nancy Pelosi's district. Uh, Pelosi's district. Uh, at the time when uh, Barney Frank was a member of Congress, it would be more liberal than Barney Frank's district. Mm-hmm. So it just illustrates again, these are very liberal people, more liberal than just even the average Democratic voter. That is a great point. You know, I love talking about media bias. We're going to have to run off to a break here in a moment. I want to tell you before we do that about our guest coming up in the next segment. We have a guest calling in, and it's Jennifer Marshall. I've met her before. She's really nice, too, besides being really smart. But she works at the Heritage Foundation, and she uh, holds the title of Vice President of the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. But the thing she's going to talk about is an annual study they do, the cultural and uh, no, it is called the Index of... I can't get in front of me fast enough. The the Index of Culture and Opportunity for 2017. You'll love it. Come right back. Our nation faces a choice. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national debate on property rights energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit TexasPolicy.com to learn more. If you want to get at the issues that really matter for women and men, go to IWF.org. That's the Independent Women's Forum. IWF is all about increasing the number of American women who value free markets and personal liberty. IWF's motto is all issues are women's issues. They bring a fact-based approach to politics, policy, and culture. When the left tried to peddle a phony war on women, IWF shot back with facts and figures. 
American women aren't victims in need of ever-increasing government protection. And IWF doesn't think things are perfect, but they believe that individual liberty is the key to prosperity and fulfillment. Along with their sister organization, Independent Women's Voice, IWVoice.org, which is a leader in the fight against Obamacare, they offer policy papers, op-eds, and a popular blog on issues of the day. So visit IWF at IWF.org. That's IWF.org. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are nearly a half million Heritage members and supporters in America. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates from Heritage Foundation on the fight for conservative solutions to America's challenges. Plus, you'll receive exclusive invitations to conservative events where you live. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I have my right view roundtable in the studio, which is just great. Lori Medina, Kirby Anderson. And we have on the phone, I do believe we have on the phone, Jennifer Marshall of the Heritage Foundation. Hi, Jennifer. Well, hello. It's great to be with you. Great to have you. And I want to tell our listeners again, if you're just tuning in, Jennifer is the Vice President of the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. And she is also, she was the, I guess, the executive editor of the 2017 Index of Culture and Opportunity put out by Heritage Foundation. Is that the right title that you had with this? Yes, that's right. I uh, edited this volume. Okay. You know, I'll tell listeners, it is long. Um, and again, everything we talk about the show is linked on the website, americacanwetalk.org. But I want to just preface this conversation uh, and then jump in to say this. We were talking before the show how... There are many conservatives who will say, can't we just stick to talking about tax rates, immigration policy, refugee policy, uh, you know, environmental regulation? Why do conservatives have to talk about 
families and marriage and things like that. It just makes people upset. But Heritage Foundation, the premier conservative think tank in Washington, D.C., um, you you have a whole segment, a whole section of Heritage that deals with these issues and culture. So why do you do that? Well, thank you. Yes, that's right. I lead the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation, and we're devoted to thinking about these questions that have to do so much with the foundation of our society and the uh, strength and stability of our culture. And our reason for doing that, for devoting our time and resources to this, is that we believe we cannot achieve limited government, uh, a smaller federal government, uh, tax uh, reductions, tax reform, uh, a strong, thriving economy, uh, leadership on the international stage. These things are very much connected to our strength and stability as a society. And we know that the uh, strength of the family and the flourishing of our communities, our civil society institutions, is very much linked to uh, achieving those other goals with regard to uh, limited government, a strong economy, a strong national defense. So that's uh, we see these as all integrated, and you can't uh, tackle one without the other. You know, I was reading over this again today in preparation for the show, and I just the analogy that I mentioned to Kirby and Lori, my roundtable here tonight before we started, was, you know, if you had a child raised um, kind of in the streets and kind of with foster care, jumping around, and that child, you know, got to adulthood or got to the age of 18 versus a child raised in a two-parent home where the parents uh, impart their values, their faith, their work ethic, they encouraged, they gave love. You know, would you agree that those two kids are likely going to be different from each other? They're going to have different traits and qualities. And, and if you can see that, which I think everyone can, just multiply that by a million or however many kids. And, and just the notion that, that that is what creates this. I mean, I really could see your point when I thought about that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know that children born outside of marriage are five times more likely to experience poverty than those born and raised in intact families. And, you know, these data are not destiny. We should never look at statistics that are hard like that and, and think that that consigns anyone to a particular fate in the future. But what it does mean is that we should be sober about the challenges that face us as a nation when we see that four out of ten children today are born outside of marriage um, among blacks, that's actually more than seven out of ten. Uh, so, if we want, if we're concerned about inequalities in society, if we're concerned about opportunity for all, we need to be concerned about the family, and we need to think a lot about uh, the civil society resources that are around a person. You know, so many of us have had the blessing of um, family and connections through family relationships, and we even take for granted the ways that relational capital has played a part in opening the doors to opportunity for us. And if you don't have that relational capital early in your life, uh, you, you're you going to be missing out on many of the things that, that a lot of Americans take for granted. And so thinking about, you know, if we do want this to be a land of opportunity for all, we have to uh, consider these issues of, um, of family, of community, of cultural uh, associations, supports, churches, networks that are uh, bringing those relational uh, capital opportunities to uh, people today. 
You know, Jennifer, one of the and Debbie, one of the illustrations that uh, Mike Huckabee used when he ran for the presidency is the difference between what he called Hucktown and your town. In Hucktown, you know, people work hard, they uh, get up early, nobody gets drunk, nobody uses drugs. The divorce rate is zero. All the children are raised in stable two-family home, two-parent homes. But he says, compare that to your town, where the divorce rate is 50%, where the kids come home to empty homes. There's vandalism, internet pornography, drugs, alcohol. Guess which one is the most expensive? Which one has the highest tax rates? And Debbie, it's back to your point. Lots of times people see these social issues as not related to economic issues. They're very easily related, aren't they? Absolutely. Go Uh, ahead, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you look at the a uh, great majority of welfare expenditures that are coming from our federal government today, they go predominantly to uh, single-parent families. So there's a high correlation between the long-term dependence on welfare and uh, single parenthood. So we need to be, if, if we want to talk about reforming welfare, helping people to be self-sufficient, uh, and so on, we, we do need to think about these family issues and restoring a culture that supports marriage um, rather than being agnostic or, or not concerned with it. I'm going to turn the next segment to talk about, you know, so if you're a think tank, but you can't, there's not much legislatively to do, what that means we do to respond to this. But I want to dive into what you found. So, again, if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Jennifer Marshall, who is the vice president of the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. And we're speaking about the Heritage 2017 Index of Culture and Opportunity. So, actually, just tell our listeners a little bit about how you put this. What is this report? What did you draw from to put this report together? Yeah, sure. This, is, this index of culture and opportunity is something we have done annually for the last four years at the Heritage Foundation. And we look at 31 different indicators of culture, welfare independence, poverty independence, and uh, education, and the economy. And what we wanted to do, number one with all of this, is to say, you know, so many of our conversations about opportunity in America talk about, you know, the GDP or the unemployment rate, uh, things like that. And those are important, but they are not the full story of opportunity, as we've been talking about already here tonight. And so connecting the dots to show that there are these uh, antecedent factors about family and culture that matter for whether people are going to be able to grab hold of the economic opportunity, the educational opportunity that uh, American life thankfully affords us. Um, so that's the story of these 31 indicators. We track them year over year, and these are all national data sources that are readily available. Um, and we, we then ask, we look at the last 10-year trend. So how, what happened to a particular uh, trend line like the marriage rate, like the um, dependence on food stamps? What's happened over the last 10 years? Has it gone up or down? Is it going in the right direction or the wrong direction in terms of opening the path to opportunity for all Americans? And then, of course, there's always a story behind numbers. A, a single data point sometimes gives you a good gist of what's going on, but often often there's something more that we need to know. And so we asked for experts in each of these areas to write a commentary on it. And we have uh, 31 great experts uh, looking at these data points in the, in the volume and writing uh, really helpful commentary to put some, some context and, in many cases, real-life stories in the context of that data. Okay, so Jennifer, I want to ask you, we have a minute and a half in this segment, but 
you know, looking at the oh, the executive summary you prepared, which is actually for folks, if you're not going to read the whole thing, the executive summary tells you a lot. Um, but the executive summary dives into different, you have it divided, all these data points you've gathered, and they are fall into cultural indicators, poverty and dependence indicators, and general opportunity indicators. So let's just start with the marriage one. You mentioned marriage. So what was the outcome of the index of culture and opportunity on the subject of marriage? So the marriage rate did go up slightly uh, this last year of data available for it, but the 10-year change continues to be dropping. Um, So the reason we look at that 10-year change is because often you can have a one-year blip, a two-year blip, but we want to look at a window to tell us a little more of a story. And unfortunately, the story on marriage is that the rate of marriage has been declining for several decades. And that's a challenge as we see um, with the rise of unwed uh, childbearing um, at the same time. And the the challenge of dependency that goes with it. So that's you know it's very interesting to watch these things move often in correlation with one another, and that's been the case. The marriage rate decline obviously is something that is a factor uh, across many of these indicators. Yeah, you know what? We are going to need to go off to break here in a moment. When we come back though after our break. I want to ask you a couple of things. First of all, you know, as you gather all this data and you realize where we are, and so what is the conscientious, serious conservative going to do with that data? You can't pass laws forcing marriage or ending marriage. So I'd like to hear more of your ideas about what we should do to correct some of these things. I'm Debbie Georgias, Kirby Anderson, Lori Medina, America Can We Talk. Come right back. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. There's a lot of talk today among media, in academia, in our culture, about everything that is supposedly wrong with America. Political correctness tries to dictate that we must stop thinking that America is exceptional. America's bravest have our back in the air, at sea, and on land. But who has America's back in the culture? In schools, on cable television, in newspapers? It's time to end the greatest prejudice on earth, anti-Americanism. And who makes the case for America? Flag does. Flag is the foundation for liberty and American greatness. Flag has America's back on the cultural battlefield. Flag is a nonprofit battle tank working to change the cultural and media narrative about America. If you think it's time to stand up for America, join the Foundation for Liberty and American Greatness. Your support of Flag is an investment in the America your children will inherit. Visit their website at flagusa.org and consider donating. All donations are 100% tax deductible. That's flagusa.org. Could you lose your career because of your faith? 
Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit FirstLiberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's FirstLiberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to FirstLiberty.org now. Attention Ronald Reagan fans. What is the one item most sought after by Americans who love the Gipper? It's Young America's Foundation's Reagan Ranch Calendar. Young America's Foundation is the leading youth outreach organization dedicated to ensuring that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom, a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values. New audiences of young people across the country are introduced to conservative ideas through Young America's Foundation's programs, including the Reagan Ranch Program. The Reagan Ranch calendar contains spectacular images of the Gipper enjoying his beautiful 688-acre ranch, the Western White House. For a limited time, the calendar is free. Even shipping is free. To receive your beautiful Reagan Ranch calendar from Young America's Foundation, call 800-USA-1776 and mention the phrase Reagan Gift. Again, the number is 1-800-USA-1776 and Reagan Gift is the code. Learn more about Young America's Foundation at www.yaf.org. That's yaf.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. Love, love, love talking to you all every Sunday night. Love that you listen. Want to actually express gratitude for all the comments on Facebook last week during the show. And you're, if you're listening on your radio, you can listen to this on Facebook Live at America Can We Talk. And you can listen online at americacanwetalk.org. Click on Listen Live. Okay, so tuning back in, we have on the phone Jennifer Marshall. And I'm just so glad she was available to talk to us tonight. She's the Vice President for the Institute for Family community and opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. And also she uh, is talking with us about the Heritage 2017 Index of Culture and Opportunity. And Lori wanted to say something about the marriage thing. I think you're ready to talk about that. So Jennifer, um, you loved all the the individual articles that were written about each one of these 31 issues. Um, It just seemed to bring a real level of kind of humanity to the the data and the statistics that, that you all had compiled. Um, but uh, the Reverend Derek McCoy made the comment about the mistruths regarding marriage, and I thought that was so meaningful that he said merit that the mistruths are number one, marriage can wait, and number two, marriage is unnecessary. And it it just seemed to me, Jennifer, that the era that we live in, the millennial generation, that they have just grabbed on to those mistruths and held on to them so tightly. And it seems like that's our uh, decline in marriage, that they they just they want to believe this. Mm -hmm. You know, thank you for raising that. And and Reverend McCoy is a pastor working with predominantly black congregations. And he his his wisdom here is born of experience because he's teaching marriage education classes and hearing right from people their Mm -hmm. reactions to things and seeing this on the front lines. 
And we wanted to do that because um, we wanted to have people like him contribute to a volume like this because it is a necessity, and I know Debbie's wanting to take the conversation here too, that we have to think about both the policy angle and the efforts that are necessary in culture to restore uh, a society that's supportive of marriage, of family, uh, rebuilding these networks of relational capital, as I've been calling them. And that takes individual efforts, like Derek McCoy's, uh, like others who are, are portrayed in the index and who were contributors this year to our volume. You know, I, I want to jump in. This uh, one thing on, on that subject of this, uh, how you resolve or how you try to fix these problems. I often say in this show to speak up for America. And in this case, just example, the idea of just in personal conversation, mm-hmm. when young people say, millennials say, well, you know, marriage, I don't think we really need it. We don't need it now. We don't have to be bothered. I'm not in a rush. Yeah, I'm not in a that. rush. I'm not in a rush. But yeah. to be ready with an answer that's not just mm-hmm. that that is rooted in something mm-hmm. that I mean sure. it, certainly rooted in scripture and the notion that you know if you're, you're going to be together you should be married but leaving that aside even if you don't say that rooted in the notion of the impact on society mm-hmm. I mean right. to to springboard to, to to say something more than well okay you know? right. yeah. or you know they always will say well. You wouldn't buy a pair of shoes without trying them on first. You wouldn't buy a car without a test drive. And, of course, I say, yeah, but if you uh, listen to people like Diane Medved or Barbara Dayful Whitehead or others, they say that by living together before you get married, you increase your divorce rate by an additional 50%. So even apart from the moral issues, they're just the pragmatic issues that you can bring up to really begin to talk somebody out of uh, some of these ideas. That's a great data point. I heard someone the other day, funny you say that, they were on the, uh, and they said, living together is not practicing being married. It's practicing not committing to each other. Yes. Oh, that's Which good. I thought that was so good. Practicing not committing. That's yeah, really good. Yeah, because that's what it is. Yeah. Okay, so Jennifer, this I, I think this is so interesting. I First of all, I really commend Heritage Foundation for yes. doing this report, for, for taking all the data points together. We happen to jump off on marriage, but just for our listeners' sake, so you know, this, there is an executive summary that Jennifer prepared, and it lists all these uh, data points falling under three categories. Again, culture, poverty and dependence, and general opportunity. Switching to poverty and dependence, just for a moment— you know, I think that we have had so many political conversations that either that, that you kind of force the, the characterization by the left is you're either in support of expanding food stamps and dependency or you're a hater and you don't care about poor people. But really part of the shift that comes from reading a lot of this is just the opposite. If you love your fellow man and you mm-hmm. want to help them. You want to inspire them to lift themselves out of dependency. It's not a badge of honor for America to have a growing percentage of people in a dependency state of mind. Right, exactly. The only way that that's successful is if your measure of success is increased dependence on government. And instead, what we should be seeking as conservatives who are uh, seeing our fellow citizens as whole persons that means thrive, that we should seek their thriving in a material sense. Yes, we hope for that. We want prosperity for all, but also in, in their, all of their living situation, in their um, relational context, in their family context, 
Uh, we want peace and harmony and the ability to achieve dreams. And this goes well beyond the material. So we need to be looking at the safety net, that's the welfare state, as something that is there if there literally is no place else to turn, but that helps people get up on their feet and to achieve their own dreams in their own ways. Uh, the, the welfare state is never going to be able to provide all of that, and we shouldn't treat it as success if we've merely given handouts. We want to see that the public assistance that is available is a hand up so that a person can live out and pursue their dreams. So when we see massive growth in food stamps like we have over the last decade, um, risen, it's risen about 17 million uh, persons increased on, on food stamps between uh, 2006 and 2016. That's an amazing growth, and we, we should not be content with that. We should be working hard uh, to transform that program uh, so it's available for people who truly need it, but not expanding to those who can provide for themselves and their families elsewhere. And, of course, there are immediate policy uh, kinds of things that can be done. They've been explored in a couple of states like Maine and Kansas, where a simple work requirement, if you're receiving food stamps, you need to be preparing for work, looking for work, getting a job. That kind of a work requirement was established for the population known as able-bodied adults without dependents. And, and when that work requirement was applied, the roles of that population dropped by 80%. So dramatic changes by a simple and fair common-sense reform. I love that. And, you know, I just, I feel like we can go about a thousand directions and um, <clears throat> even I can't talk fast enough to get through everything <laughs> I'd like to talk with you about. But I do really commend Heritage for putting this information together. And really, as I said, Lori said earlier, it's great to have all the data. And I mean, direct for our listeners, you know, data about things ranging from the marriage rate, divorce rate, um, fertility rate, single parent households, teen drug use. I'm not going to read all of them, I promise. But within dependency, the labor force participation rate, we've mm-hmm. talked about this many times in this show, unemployment numbers don't really tell you the story. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, self-sufficiency, total welfare spending, and then in the general opportunity category, things like reading proficiency, charter school enrollment, private school choice participation. I mean, I just think the whole taking the temperature of America's culture and saying, are we improving or are we not? And in the areas where we're not, what can we do as a society, which we like to grow and develop our, our society's stability, the sense of a, a civil society where we look out for each other. I, I really, really commend. So um, I want to ask you, too, we still have a little bit of time here. So, Jennifer, what was there one big surprise that uh, emerged in this data for you this year? One of the most encouraging things was that the abstinence measure, this is the uh, percentage of teens who have ha- ever had sex, that's actually at its lowest since the uh, data going back to 1991. Uh, so the rate of uh, teen sex is, is at its lowest point since measuring back to 1991. That's, that's very encouraging to hear. And, and so many of these issues, like abstinence, I want to see empowerment through the data to the individuals. And in this way, I think conservatives um, are really about let's tell the full story. Let's give the fa- all the facts to young people about what it means to engage in sex early before marriage. What are the risks associated with that? Let's tell them the facts about cohabitation, about marriage, and so on, and the challenges, and, and give them the information that empowers them 
to make wise decisions about their future. Uh, let's not uh, force conclusions that are, are somebody else's judgments, uh, like we so often have seen about comprehensive uh, sex education or safe sex and so on. Let's really give them all the facts and let them uh, be evaluating the data for themselves as they're making choices about their future. Excellent. Love that. Excellent. Yeah, we're all, we're all, it's too bad you're not Excellent. here in Dallas. We're all nodding along. Yep, 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 yep. Really, really appreciate all of that. Um, you know, we don't have a lot, we just have a couple of minutes. So I want to just mention one thing. I remember reading, I was telling these, my friends here, Kirby and Lori in the break, my round table that, you know, I remember reading a study one time that was talking about how it was observational about statistics and fewer people getting married and whatever, all these statistics that were, that were breaking up with the family, dissolving the family, and they're being reported in a way as though you were observing a fraud life cycle or just something that you couldn't do a thing about but really I saw at that time reading it that they you know to have that abstract you know um, just kind of recitation or observation without acknowledging both the forces that push people in society in a certain direction and, and which I think are many in America we have our movies and the Hollywood and media and just all sorts of pushing to abandon uh, the centrality of faith the centrality of family and then they see the consequence and they try to report as always oh, a neutral wow this is interesting wonder why that's happening so I love it heritage you're kind of like responding and saying actually we'll tell you why it's happening and we'll tell you why it's better and so you have about a minute left here I'd love you to share anything else you'd like about this uh, this index Jennifer. Well, you know, we haven't m- mentioned the, the big bonus uh, aspect of this. We have a, an introduction each year by um, uh, great contributors, and this year it's J.D. Vance. So J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy, wrote the introduction to this year's Index of Culture and Opportunity. And I think his message just hits exactly the right notes that the what, what is ailing uh, so many parts of America that have been overlooked by elites on the coast is something that goes deeper than economics, and it really does go to these kinds of cultural factors uh, that we've been talking about here tonight. Uh, his own story tells that so well, Hillbilly Elegy, and, and that's just really struck a chord, I think, with the national conversation, uh, and it's also a perfect pitch for the opening of, of this index as well. Mm-hmm. It certainly was. I gave our kids all that book for Christmas last year, J.D. Vance's Hillbillyology, because it was it was such a wow kind of you know amazing that anyone lives in America and had that life story it is truly amazing. Well, Jennifer Marshall, I cannot thank you enough for calling in tonight. Love talking with you. Thank you, Debbie. Great to be with you guys. Okay, folks, we got to go off the top of the hour break, and when we come back. We're going to keep on talking about America. Don't go away. <laughs> 